The First World War is usually cited as the end of an era for a certain kind of European politics, the end of the long 19th century. But even though the Russian Empire was dealt a blow and German dreams of empire were set back, the British and French empires survived. And when the Nazis came to power in Germany, they set about building a radical vision of empire modeled on those of their neighbors, just as their Axis partners, the Japanese and the Italians, were doing. It was World War II that truly signaled the end of the great era of European territorial empire, an era that ended, in the words of the writer Leonard Wolff, not in a peaceful burial, but in blood and ruins. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Before we get to today's interview, I'd like to share a word from our sponsor, The Spectator. As the longest running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the magazine's unique brand of high-quality writing and analysis to American audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access, plus they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code SOW, and you'll get access to their amazing contributors, including Christopher Buckley, Christopher Caldwell, and Douglas Murray. Sign up today to get three months of The Spectator and get your free hat at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code SOW at checkout. Back to the episode. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War today. I'm joined today by Richard Overy. He is professor of history at the University of Exeter. He's written and edited more than 30 books, including most recently, The Magnificent Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. Richard, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. I thought I'd, I'd start the conversation today with a question that's sort of half choking, but but half maybe a serious way into some of the most important issues that your book raises, which in the, in the preface, you make the, uh, the observation or the claim that quote, the long second world war was the last imperial war. And I feel sitting here on, we're recording on Wednesday, February the 23rd, you have Russian regular troops moving into these two new quote unquote, independent statelets in the Eastern part of Ukraine. And um, to put it mildly, uh, a pretty good chance that they're going to move further west or that Russia is going to invade Ukraine from other directions. I, my, my first question to you is, you know, are you going to need to update this, this claim in, in subsequent editions of the book? May we not have seen the, the end of imperial war? Well, maybe not, but uh, I, I've chosen this for the Second World War because it's really the end of a particular kind of territorial empire established mainly by European states going back 400 years 
where they established you know, colonies, protectorates, um, client states, and so on, but dominated them territorially and dominated them as subject peoples. Russia's expansion is, you know, it's uh, Russia is a hegemonic power and it's it's doing what hegemonic powers often do. But I don't see this as the same kind of territorial empire that I'm talking about in the book. Well, maybe we can start there then. Um, what is the kind of territorial empire um, that comes to the fore as a you know system of of politics and and rule prior to the Second World War, which which in your your view of things the war ends. Well, I take it back to the late 19th century with the so-called new imperialism. European empires had existed, of course, since the 15th, 16th century. But the new imperialism was the point at which the major powers spread out into all the areas of the world that had not yet been taken over uh, in Asia, in Africa, in the Pacific, and so on. The new states, Germany, Italy, Japan, wanted to join that scramble. They did so, but not very successfully. And after the First World War, all three of them thought that what they really needed to become great powers was the kind of territorial empire that the British, the French had got, even the Belgians and the Dutch. And, and that would be the key to becoming a great power again. It was anachronistic, looking back to, a, in fact, the past age, a delusion in the end. But that's why, why I'm talking about a particular kind of empire. It seems to me that it's it, it, it arises with the geopolitical changes brought about at the end of the 19th century, modernizing states, industrializing states, and so on, mass politics, wanting to establish what I call in the book nation empires. And that's what Japan and Germany initially wanted. And in the 1930s, they fought for it. In the 1940s, of course, they fought a world war for it. What is a nation empire as a subset of presumably other kinds of territorial empires? Well, nation empire, it, it again emerges really at the end of the 19th century with the rise of European nationalism, a proper sense of national identity, uh, and the need in, in a way to secure that identity by demonstrating a wider power in the world. So the, the establishment of an empire, territorial empire, was seen as a way of, it's, it's a paradox in a way, it's a way of securing national identity, if you like. So the nation empire uh, became, a, for them, a very important phenomenon. It meant you were not just France, but you were greater France, as they called it. Uh, you're not just Britain, but you were the British Empire, which covered a third of the globe. And that's, in a way, what the Japanese and the Italians and the Germans wanted to do as well. They wanted to establish an empire that secured their national identity. And you, I mean, it certainly seems on its face, and you kind of, you, you get it uh, multiple times in the book, that there's a sort of tension here, even within the very concept, the notion of a nation empire, these, these notions of nationalism, which seems to seem to suggest a kind of equality that sort of evoke the French Revolution and in some kind of echo um, on the one hand, um, and then, you know, rule on the other, rule by one people of another. Does, does that, does that, how, how does that tension ultimately play out or is it is is, is that relevant in the account that you oh, it is, yes. i mean it, it is an obvious tension and of course most of the people in nation states of europe never went to the empire and never really understood what it was but they they did know you know whether it was postage stamps or um or or, or movies or whatever it was you know they had some way of recognizing that their power spread over overseas 
But of course it was a paradox at home in France in particular, of course she was establishing parliamentary democracies and so on. Uh, in the colonies, you had no intention of establishing uh, parliamentary democracies. So there was one rule for the nation, one rule for the empire. And in the end, that's what the Germans and the Japanese, the Italians do in the Second World War. They take over, in fact, lots of sovereign states, you know, China, the Soviet Union, Ethiopia, and they think they can turn them into subject peoples, you know, like the empires of the 19th century. And of course they couldn't, and that was, you know, again, one of the major factors in the collapse of empire during the Second World War. Is that the or a principal difference between this this new wave of, of empires that, you know, the, the fascist powers like Germany, Italy, Japan, have with the older version is that they are targeting sovereign states. What 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 are the the big differences between the uh, the the vision of empire that the Axis powers have? Just to speak collectively for a moment, and then we can go into detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the I old mean, version. I mean, one you know, one major difference, as you said, you know, they're attacking sovereign states, all of them members of the United Nations of, of the sorry League of Nations. So, you know, that, it's bizarre to think of that as colonial territory or territory that can be part of an empire. And the other thing is simply the speed with which they had to do it. The British and the French, Dutch and so on, it took a long time to build up their empires. They became increasingly greedy for territory and increasingly violent as the 19th century went on. But this was a slow process. The Germans wanted to create an empire in 10 years or less. And they were quite willing to embrace genocide to do so. But the genocides in the earlier empire building, whether it's the Aborigines of Australia or whether it's, you know, Native Americans, of course, this took decades or centuries. So the, the real problem is that these, these are quite radical empires. They want to transform the world in a handful of years, where the other empires, of course, have taken, in some cases, centuries to develop. And these are these are popular programs or populist programs um, in in the sense that uh, Hitler and Mussolini, the, the Japanese government are, are successfully mobilizing popular sentiment behind their their goals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's less evident, I think, in the Italian case because uh, yeah. much of the Italian population by the late nineteen thirties got pretty tired of Mussolini, but in the case of of Germany and of Japan. There was a popular engagement between the population, the imperial ambitions of the leadership. And, uh, and in Japan, millions of Japanese identified entirely with the imperial project and resented the fact that the British and the Americans you know, wouldn't allow them to do it or wouldn't allow them to do it freely. In Germany, again, that strong sense that you know, Germany was a civilizing power but Germany deserved an empire. The German people deserved somewhere to rule, and it was wrong of the British and the French and the others to say that they couldn't. You um you you bring up and discuss in the book Halford Mackinder, who is uh, who has popped yeah. up from time to time in, on other episodes that we have recorded. Um, this you know at one point sort of long forgotten um, writer, in some ways inventor of geopolitical thinking at the turn of the you know the early twentieth century in, in Britain. But you, you bring him up in the way in which his thinking is received in Germany, which I think is an important part of the story and one that leaves him his 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 reputation in a bit of a cloud, depending on who you're you're speaking to about him. So maybe just step back for a second. Who was Halford McKinder? What what was he saying just to review briefly and then how did the Germans Yeah, well he was a well, I mean he was a, a British academic geographer. 
who wrote, uh, uh, it was only an article he wrote before the First World War, talking about the, um, the, the importance of Eurasia as the, as the world center and that any powers that dominated Eurasia in the future, uh, given, you know, the, the new age of rail travel, soon the age of air travel and so on, uh, would become the dominant power in the world. And the maritime powers, um, Britain, France, the United States, would become part of the periphery. Now, that appealed, of course, to German geographers, uh, precisely because Germany was a land power, always looking to the east for decades. And the idea that somehow Germany could be the, the state that revolutionized Eurasia was was something Hitler latched onto in the 1920s and developed, of course, by the time of the Barbarossa campaign in 1941. So this, this vision of a powerful Eurasia, whoever dominates Eurasia, is essentially the world pivot. Now, Putin might have read a bit of Mackinder as well, I think, because he clearly has an idea about dominating Eurasia too. But in, in, uh, in Hitler's eyes, this was the natural thing for the Germans. They'd always pressed East and never quite managed it. Now he was going to dominate Eurasia with a Japanese ally on the other side. And then they would turn to the Anglo-Saxon powers and say, well, you know, we are the power now. Maritime powers don't count. So let's, let's speak a bit about the, the Germans then. And so what, b- before the rise of the Nazi party, in, in, in a way we're already speaking about this, how does the German vision of, of empire develop specifically? What's, what's distinct about it compared to, you know, British visions and, and, and for that matter, Japanese and Italian visions? Well, the German version of empire before the First World War was rather similar. In fact, I mean, it was a, it was a, essentially a racist empire in which you, you know, you saw yourself as a superior culture and you were bringing civilization and Christianity to the areas that you, uh, you colonized or indeed conquered. And this was very important for trade. And the assumption was that the more colonial territory you had, the, the richer you would become. The Germans didn't get much colonial territory, you know, just a, 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 a few stretches of Africa and a few Pacific islands. So what they wanted uh, was to do something like the British and the French Empire. Lots of territory, lots of resources and markets. Um, and that was an idea that existed in the 1920s in certainly among radical nationalist circles. Um, many German geographers served um, the same purpose, they, they again thought of empire in those terms. But only when Hitler came to power was it possible to turn those sorts of fantasies into reality. Yeah. And then there is just to, I, I realize I keep, um, we keep talking about the lead up to the war. We haven't really gotten to the war yet, but we'll get there. But um, in, in terms of German imperial aims, obviously, um, and we can go into more detail about this, you know, the Nazis accelerate and, uh, you, you know, make make more acute and violent aspects of German imperialism that existed before. But there are, this is Fritz Fischer's big point, right, about the First World War. German war, war aims in the First World War at some point do seem similar to German war aims in the Second World War in the sense that in the First World War, correct, there is discussion of, of slobs, of room to the east. And so those are not brand new concepts for the Nazis, correct? No, no, they're not. No, no, no. I mean, I make the point in the book. This, the fantasy is about uh, a, a, a Germanized East going right back to the 1880s and 90s and so on. And at the end of the First World War, when uh, the, the, the new Soviet state has to sign the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, 
in March 1918, the Germans are suddenly dominating the whole area, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on, right down to the Caucasus. And, and they begin to think that their visions of empire, which many of them have had before 1914, might actually become a reality. So yes, it's not new. It's, 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 I, always this idea that some, there's, a, there's an area that German culture deserved to rule, and it couldn't do it in Western Europe. It couldn't really do it very easily overseas. So the natural place to look is to the east. Well, let's let's spell that out for a second. Why, why can't it do it in Western Europe? What, from the German perspective, is so different about France versus you know the, the parts of the Russian Empire? Yeah, well, so I mean, they saw they saw the other European states as part of the great power system. They saw that the, the Slav areas to the east as primitive, even barbaric. I mean, those are the kind of words that you used to describe it. And therefore, you know, it's a place where the Germans can come, can rule, can transform the area, can you know, take over the resources. But you can't do that very easily in, in Western or Central Europe. You know, here is a great power system. Powers are, you know, are seen by Germany as equals. But the Slav mass, you know, it, it's there's this strange fantasy that somehow or other the Slavs are fit only fit to be ruled, and that the Germans are the best people to do it. So the war begins, the, the, the war proper. I mean, you, you, you point out that the war proper, the, the period from 1939 to 1945 is, you know, only properly understood as sort of the climactic phase of a much longer story of, of war for that matter. But the, the war starts, Barbarossa happens. Before that, the Germans have already, you know, gobbled up Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe. And it, it turns out to be short-lived for reasons we can get to. But for a while there, the Germans do have the start of something like an Eastern empire. You know, so as as they seize it, as territory is is growing under their control, um, how do they think about ruling it? How do they begin the 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 actual you know implementation of a program of empire? What sources are they drawing on? How do they go about this this business? Yeah, that was a good question. I mean, the bizarre thing about the Second World War is that not just in the German case, but also in the Japanese case too, the strong sense that they've that they've already won, that they can now build their empire and it will be a long-term empire. You've got the, you know, Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, who's in charge of much of the program in the East, uh, thinking that, you know, that the Germans are going to rule this area for 500 years and you're going to be 600 million Germans inhabiting it in the end of 500 years. Uh, extraordinary fantasies that somehow the empire, you know, now it's been conquered, will become a permanent feature. And so they begin to plan his organization politically. They begin to extract all the resources that they want because they need them for the war as well. But, but the idea is that they'll go on, you know, once the war's over, they'll extract these resources and the foodstuffs. The Slavs will become basically subject peoples, uh, forced laborers and so on. And above all, they will cleanse the area of all unwanted ethnic groups of which the most obvious were the Jews. And then you will settle Germans in many of the, the areas. And these plans are put into operation, not just the slaughter of the Jews, which does take place, of course, but they begin to move German settlers in. They, they want to transform the landscape. They want to build new towns. And all of this takes place in, this, in the space of two or three years in the, the middle of the middle of the war. Looking back at it, it's simply deluded. But at the time, there was a... A strange confidence that perhaps they had actually done it. You know. And had they defeated the Soviet Union or started a suit for peace, then you know they might have become a permanent power across that part of Eurasia. 
Um, I, I know this is a, a matter of, of ongoing debate amongst historians of the period, but everyone seems to agree at a certain point relatively early in the war, this really is all delusional and, and that there's a ticking yeah. clock for the Axis powers. And I guess, you know, Pearl Harbor is one one possible or the, the, the German declaration of war on the United States is mm-hmm. one possible moment where that gets locked in. Others, I think, would put it back earlier in the summer. Where where do you put it? Is is there any point where this might have, where, where we might live in a world today where there is something like a Nazi empire, where they, they actually had a shot at achieving it? Well, it was, it was a close fun thing. The Allies had to learn to fight much better. A uh, string, a long string of defeats. Um, and, um, you know, unwillingness or lack of capacity really to confront the Axis. The battles at the end of 1942 are the decisive ones, which suddenly show that the Axis, there is a limit to what the Axis can, can do. But, you know, if the Allies had not been able to collaborate or, you know, if so, it lost some of those major battles, it's not impossible to imagine. But, it, you know, once the United States is in the, is in the conflict and determined to fight it, uh, uh, it is difficult to see how the Axis states are going to, you know, build a, a, an empire uh, and produce a settled geopolitical order. So just to stick with, uh, with German imperialism for a second, then, um, I'm, I'm curious, you, you, you mentioned the, the sort of beginning of a settler program. How does that, how does that actually work? One thinks of earlier European empires, you know, Brits going to India, there's, there's a, one imagine there's a kind of draw to that, that Brits are going to India for economic opportunity and, and, you know, curiosity and all sorts of human motivations. Is that at play here as well? Is it more compulsion of the Nazi state? Um, you know, what, what's taking people to the East? Well, not very many people go, of course, the onset. Himmler and uh, Hitler and others, you know, they talk about the colonies, the Siberian areas are going to be colonized. And they start looking around for, for volunteers. And they can't find very many volunteers because obviously sensible Germans realize that this is a pretty dangerous place to go. But, you know, that, that was the idea. You just got volunteers. But in the end, they couldn't get enough in Germany, so they basically used the, the German speakers who lived in Poland or the Baltic states or Romania and moved them to camps in Poland and Germany and then and then say, we've got a farm for you in Ukraine and send them off. Thousands of them went and then thousands of them came back three years later. Let's switch to Japan. What is distinctive or unique about the the Japanese, you know, late stage vision of, of territorial empire? Yeah, I mean, it's a curious thing because there's no evidence of it at all in earlier Japanese history, of course. And since 1945, you know, the East Fences have disappeared entirely. I think it's partly the, the, the modernization drive in Japan from the 1860s onwards. They were desperate to model themselves, particularly on the British, um, to a certain extent on the Germans. And, uh, and they did persuade themselves that territorial empire was you know, the, the reason why the British were so successful. And, uh, you know, uh, they had a right as uh, a civilized Asian people um, to establish the same kind of empire in, in, in Asia. There's one Japanese official who says to a, a British um, a diplomat, you know, why is it all right for you to dominate India, but not all right for us to dominate China? And that kind of thinking was quite widespread among the Japanese elite during this period. Um, but what really pushes them, I think, towards the, the final decisions uh, the, is the economic crisis. 
1929, 32, because for Japan, that's a, well, a catastrophe. It's very difficult because um, Japanese agriculture is in great difficulties and so on. The silver industry is facing problems. And suddenly, export markets close down um, and the Japanese economy is threatened with, uh, with real crisis. I think that's what tilts a lot of the elite to the idea that, you know, they've got to do something. They've got to build their own economic order. They've got to challenge the geopolitical domination of America and Britain. Um, and the only way to do it is to go to war. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, obviously the United States and Japan are allies today and cooperate closely on all sorts of uh, important considerations, not least of which is, is China. But I've been to the, uh, to the Yasukuni shrine in Tokyo, uh, yeah. been to the museum that's associated with it. Um, and yeah. I think it's, I can only go off of the English captions in the museum, but I think it's fair to walk away from that saying that it, it you know, essentially Franklin Roosevelt forced them into, you know, Pearl Harbor, uh, and yeah, yeah. into war. That, that is certainly the, the, the claim I'll, I'll keep it limited. The claim of the people who designed the museum. Yes. No, no, I mean, it's the, that was the argument at the time. And, uh, I think many Japanese historians have sustained that view since and the British and Americans have been more accommodating. Uh, they would have accepted Japanese domination of Eastern Asia and the Japanese would have had their empire without any problems. But yeah. yes, I mean, this, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, it, you can see at one level from their point of view, it makes sense. But, uh, I mean, the real problem is, uh, you know, the war in China, which is clearly illegitimate and, you know, and China is a, a sovereign power has been invaded and occupied and wants to reestablish its sovereignty. Yeah. What, what, what is it about Japan that allows them to successfully modernize along European lines, you know, beginning in the 19th century, whereas other, other Asian states essentially yeah. do, do not? Yeah, good question. Um, good question. I mean, it says much about Japanese society. Uh, there was a strong desire from the 1860s and 70s onwards to become a great power. Uh, as long as Japan had had a destiny, which has sort of gone wrong. Um, and the one way to do that is to build up the military, build up the Navy, build up Japanese industry. And they were able to do it very successfully. It was a sort of cultural gap in a way between the Japanese at that time and other Asian societies. And the Japanese were very good imitators, very good imitators. Uh, whereas other Asian societies were not imitators, they were dominated by the, the colonial powers, their economic ambitions were suppressed and so on and so on. But nobody came into Japan to interfere, so the Japanese were able to develop this themselves. Yeah. And, and then same question about Japan that we were discussing earlier about Germany, but what is, what is Japanese imperial rule? actually look like? How, how does it function? Is it all just direct military control or, or is there a civilian administration or, or how, how do they think about ruling the world for the, the brief period that they get a shot at it? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they, they're going to rule it in a variety of different ways. I mean, all of European empires were like that. They were a mix of different kinds of institutions. They, they wanted some colonial areas. They wanted areas that would remain colonies and linked closely to Japan. Otherwise, they wanted puppet states and protectorates and so on. But the object was to make the, the Japanese emperor the center of an, of an empire system in which everybody would acknowledge Japan's superiority, that they would be subjects of the empire or the emperor. And even if they had a certain amount of autonomy, that they would still all be 
circling around the imperial system, the empire at the, and the emperor at the, at the center. But of course they had to construct this un, under conditions of war. So it's quite difficult to predict exactly what it would look like had they won the war. So, um, yep. Otherwise, British government was what dominated in Europe. Got it. So how do, just to, now to step back again, um, how did the United States and also the USSR fit into this scheme we've been discussing for the last half hour or so? You have the old territorial empires, you know, sort of constructed and operating along traditional lines, the British, the French, and so forth. You have the new, uh, in some ways, much more aggressive um, fascist versions competing against them. America and Russia both, in certain obvious respects, they have territorial ambitions, though I guess this is where we start to get into the differences. They, 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 they certainly, put it this way, they certainly have hegemonic ambitions, but, the, but you don't include them, I think, in the book in, in, in the scheme of, of old versus new empires. There's something different about both of them. So, so walk, us, walk us through that. Yes. Well, it's it was quite clear the United States was going to become one of the, the world's superpowers because of its economic strength. The Soviet Union modernizing under Stalin was also turning itself rapidly into a superpower from a ramshackle czarist empire uh, into a communist-dominated uh, uh, industrial state. And the, the three uh, Axis powers, but particularly Germany and Japan, were very aware of that. Uh, Hitler was very aware that he had to move before the United States began to think about a global role and before the Soviet Union had become too strong. So both of those states were strongly anti-imperialist in the old-fashioned imperialist, imperialist sense. And, um, and they were both likely to inhibit whatever the Japanese, the Germans, or the Chinese wanted to do. So the, I think in the 1930s, this was a, a moment of opportunity because the Americans were isolationist, Soviet Union had withdrawn because it was building itself up and not yet ready to intervene and so on. So you had to move quickly, establish your empires, your economic zones and so on, and then turn around and say, well, hey, what are you going to do about it? But it turned out they, they couldn't do that, of course. Very quickly, um, Hitler's ambitions in Europe involved the Soviet Union. Japan's ambitions in China and the Pacific involved the United States. And so whether they liked it or not, they found they had to fight those two major states as well. Um, and that's uh, perhaps the most the biggest miscalculation they made, really. You couldn't exclude them. Uh, they were drag dragged into the crisis. Once they were dragged in, the chances of succeeding in building your empire begins to uh, disappear. Hmm. Well, to take the, the American case for a second, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of American historian who will argue essentially that, you know, superficial... Um, somewhat distracting differences, notwithstanding um, the rise of American power in the 19th and into the 20th centuries is inherently imperial in very old fashioned ways that the Spanish American war has a manifestly imperial outcome. And a, from that perspective, a good outcome for the United States and that it enters the second world war. Roosevelt has a kind of vision of supplanting the British empire, which in effect in ways that are kind of undeniable happen. But I, I take it from things that you say in the book that this, this, version lacks a, lacks a, a certain nuance. So draw that out. What is different from the American vision versus the, the British version of, of rule or, or controller? Yes. I mean, I don't see the American, the American position as, a, as an imperial one in that older sense. Yes, they do take over territories from Spain and uh, they're embarrassed by it. And eventually, of course, they're going to um, 
uh, reward them with some degree of autonomy or independence. Mm. Uh, I think for most Americans, though, there is a, a, a gut reaction against colonialism. Uh, for understandable reasons, of course, because of America's own heritage. But, and in the Second World War, Roosevelt and his advisors are thinking about how you project American global power. What you're going to do about, of course, as, as happens after 45, military bases everywhere, advisors and, you know, economic um, expansion, et cetera, et cetera. But what, you, what you're not going to do is to build a global colonial empire. And in fact, what you want to do is encourage the existing empires to dismantle themselves. So, I, I mean, I do see it as... as, as uh, essentially different from the experience of the other major powers. Got it. So Germany, Japan, Italy lose, the Allies win. But you, you make the case that in certain important respects, it's not actually, just as 1939 was not the beginning of the war in certain respects, 1945 is, is not the end of it. There's still a kind of playing out of the logic of the, the end of the imperial era that, that has, to, has to work out. Um, yeah. uh, give, give us a sense of how that actually works. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the most important geopolitical consequence of the Second World War was that following the defeat of the Japanese, German, and Italian empires, the other empires' days were numbered. And you got a 20-year period in which colonial empires, some of which stretched back two or three hundred years or more, dismantled, and uh, a world of independent nations is established. It's also the period, of course, of the Cold War in the United States and the Soviet Union, who became the superpowers of the Second World War, also transformed the geopolitical uh, system um, through their, their domination. So the, the Second World War signals that this big end is coming. It's really by the 19, late 1950s, 1960s, when most of the empires have unraveled. And there's no question that this is a bipolar system with the Soviets and American power dominating everything else, and a world of nation states, which is the world we live with today still. Yeah. Um, many people concentrate on the post-45 period. They concentrate on what's happening in Europe, and they concentrate on the disruption, the refugee crisis, and so on and so on. And very few historians actually see the unraveling of empire after 45 as linked with what's happening in the war, but I think they're intimately linked. And my favorite novels are is a sequence of novels by Paul Scott called the called the Raj Quartet. I don't know if you've had the pleasure, but of course it's a literary documentation no, of. Uh, oh, I, I I warmly recommend them to you. They were made into a fantastic BBC miniseries in the eighties, which is really quite good. Uh, but the first novel is called The Jewel and the Crown, and they document start in nineteen forty three, run through partition, document the end of um, of the British Empire yeah. in India. Magnificent, magnificent books. So you you make an a, an observation, sort of a. a, a, a a throwaway observation, an obvious one, but but an important one that when you started your career um, uh, as a as a historian, one could I think you say you could read everything that matters essentially. One person yes. could read everything that matters about the the war, and um, in twenty twenty two, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. I thought I'd just ask you, you know, in in addition, of course, to uh, to blood and ruins in, in in your other works, what should people read who want to understand this this great cataclysm that that. Um, you know, all, 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 all but destroyed the world, certainly destroyed an old world and made a new world in the middle of the 20th century. What, what are the best things that have been written that people should, should turn to? 
Well, good question. I mean, I think that the part of the problem of the literature of the last 30, 20 or 30 years, of course, is become more and more specialized and detailed. So that there are, there are, you know, 50 books or 100 books on Normandy, you know, there are 20 books on the Italian campaign, there are a thousand books on Barbarossa. And it, it, it's, it's difficult to take a global view. That's what I, I mean, I, I found writing this book very difficult because you've now got to include so much and take account of so much literature. So, the, you know, finding you know, half a dozen books that you can recommend to somebody to, to go away and read is, it's very difficult to do, I think. I mean, there are some books that I've been very impressed by recently. Walter Heinrich's book on the Pacific War, I think is a remarkable book, I think. Uh, Evan Maudsley, another British historian, writing on the Eastern Front too, I think, you know, he he's certainly well worth reading. On Germany, well, there are plenty of biographies of, of Hitler which um, try to you know, reformulate the story one way or or another. But Ian, Ian Kershaw's work on, on Hitler and also his book on turning points in the Second World War, you know, you learn a lot from reading those. But, um, yeah, I mean, I could give you a list of 100 books. <laughs> what, are, what are the, in, in terms of what, what's new and good, what are the books that have meant or mattered the most to your view of things that have affected you the most? Recently, do you mean? Uh, no, no, in general, in the, uh, long, in the long run. Oh, right. Well, I'll tell you a surprising thing. There was a small textbook on total war produced by an American historian of France called Gordon Wright called The Ordeal of Total War. It was produced as part of a series in 1968. Uh, and I remember reading that as a student being enormously impressed by it, how you could stand back from the conflict and already understand it in ways which other historians couldn't. And rather like Blood and Ruins, what he did was to provide some kind of a narrative for us, but actually to break it up into chapters which looked at themes related to the to the war. And I've never forgotten that book. I've got it on my shelves here. And, and in fact, I, I, I mentioned it in the, in the preface. And that's a book that uh, influenced, me, influenced me a lot at the time, thinking about how you approach the history of the Second World War. More recently, it's it's difficult. I mean, there are a few books that I, I point to and say, well, I'm, you know, if I hadn't read that, I wouldn't know X. But one of the most important books recently is the book by the Oxford historian Rana Mitter on the Chinese War, yeah. uh, who really opened, when he wrote that, I mean, he opened up for the Western audience uh, a corner of the big corner of the war that people knew very little about Partly because they just, you know, most Western foreigners don't have a language facilities to be able to do that. And uh, Arana played a very important role, I think, in, in alerting people to how much we still need to know about the war in Asia. Now, since then, there have been quite a number of uh, very good books by British and American historians. But his was, in, in many ways, a pioneer book. I mean, I mean those are two examples, you know, that I, can, I can give you. Richard Overy, author of Blood and Ruins. Thank you so much for making the time today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.